Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. Marriage would seem to be the great motivator to get your affairs in order, beginning with an estate plan. But marriage can come with its own unique issues. Hey, Tim Volk, in the last episode of your podcast, The Rainbow Bull, Scott Squilace walked us through basic estate planning and why it's so important. But today you plan to review situations that hmm, may not fall into any cookie cutter approach. True. No, it's absolutely true. I want to welcome Scott back to the show. Uh, Scott and I are good friends. Uh, he is one of the foremost experts I know in estate planning. He's practices based in Boston. Um, he works on a full range of estate planning. He has a deep understanding of the issues that surround wealth. And I think one of the nice things about having Scott is that he's very candid about the issue and willing to talk those about those issues that not everybody's willing to talk about. Uh, he has a deep understanding of the LGBTQ community and some of the unique needs that we have in our community. The podcast we've recorded with Scott previously gives a nice basic understanding of estate planning. And I think what that does is it gives us a good basis for the conversation we're going to have today, which is much more about the advanced planning and the thoughts around how we work with greater wealth and the more sophistication or complexity in people's lives. So Scott is the author of his book, uh, Whether to Wed, a Legal and Tax Guide for Gay and Lesbian Couples. When did you write that book? It was right after the Windsor decision came out in 2014, was it? 14, okay. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having the conversation with you prior to the marriage equality uh, being passed in 2015, and, and you were under deep thought about why it may pass. But we had no idea. We were really hesitant as to whether it would actually pass. Do you remember that? I've had, I've had so many conversations. When you say pass, so the whole thing started, as you may remember, in Massachusetts, right. where we had the first case back in 2003 that became effective on May 17, 2004. It was the first state in the union to legalize or recognize lawful marriages between same-sex couples. And that then let loose the flurry of anti-gay marriage statutes or constitutional amendments in a bunch of states, some court decisions in a bunch of states that were adverse, some that were favorable. And during the ensuing years, we had this patchwork of sort of recognition states and non-recognition states. And finally, in the first time the Supreme Court looked at it, it was really just in the context of whether the federal government had to recognize these marriages if they were recognized somewhere else. That was the Windsor case. They said yes. And then two years later, in the Obergefell case, they were presented with the broader question of whether there was a fundamental constitutional right for same-sex couples to be married 
everywhere and anywhere in the United States. And the court said, yes. And that's when the patchwork fell away. And we are where we are today with legalized or equal marriage in every state in the union. That was by the Supreme Court in 2015, correct? Yeah, Obergefell, right. Interesting story. Mm -hmm. You know the Obergefell story? No, tell us. One of them had a tragic diagnosis and wanted to be buried in a federal veterans cemetery along with his husband after he passed. And they wanted to sort it out before they died. And they couldn't be married in the state where they were. I think it was Illinois at the time. I I have to go back and look. And so they rented a medical jet and flew to, I think it was Maryland, got married on the tarmac by a justice of the peace and flew back. And then he died. And the issue was whether this veteran cemetery, again, I think it was Illinois, would recognize this out-of-state marriage, whether the federal government had to recognize it, right? And Justice Kennedy, to his credit, even though he was a conservative justice and had been appointed by a Republican president, went through the analysis and said, you know, we've long since decided in this country that separate but equal is not okay. Just because the water from that drinking fountain is the same as the water from that drinking fountain, you can't tell people of one uh, race to go to one drinking fountain and not to the other. And you can't say to same-sex couples, you can have domestic partnerships with all the same rights and privileges, but you can't have marriage. Only straight people can have marriage. And so that that's really the basis for that decision. I mean, it's I'm simplifying a lot of complex constitutional concepts here, but it really was about equality. Sorry to launch into my legal diet. No, and, so, and welcome so. back to the podcast. I love this. <laughs> I should have said anyway. that at the beginning. Welcome back. As well, I, I got to go to the Supreme Court hearings and sit in the council section to listen to oral arguments. And I'll never forget walking out after the first case, the Windsor case, yeah, yeah. in which, you know, all these people, the, the advocates and the justices were debating all these questions. And I walked out and I called a friend and they said, so what'd you think? And I said, I now understand a little teeny bit better how women must feel when a bunch of men are debating reproductive rights. What do you mean? I said, because there are all these straight people arguing about my right to be married. And even God bless her, Justice Sotomayor, who I adore, at one point during our argument said something like, well, now the homosexuals, and I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, can we please say gay? Um, But, you know... Everyone understands this differently based on their lived experiences. I mean, Justice Roberts, uh, I think, was slightly more compassionate than maybe he would otherwise be because both of his children are adopted. And the their other side was trying to make this argument that marriage is the, for the purposes of procreation. And so taken to a logical conclusion, that means that if you can't procreate, then maybe you shouldn't be able to get married. Are we going to fertility test straight couples? Are we going to not let... Couples that are of no no longer childbearing age get married. Like marriage is about more than just procreation. I would stipulate that it is absolutely about that, but it's not only about that. Sorry, I get very passionate about this issue. Oh no, I I I appreciate that, and the fact that you were there, you know, cool. that you got to listen. I mean, so today, uh, just to follow on that thought process, you know. What was the difference in then Congress taking action recently with it, with the? It was very political. I mean, it was lovely that they 
sort of frankly too little too late, you know, adopted a recognition of marriage act, but it, 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 I think it, it, as a technical legal matter could be argued that it's sort of prophylactic so that it's, we have to go back to a couple of summers ago when the court reversed the 50 year precedent around reproductive rights by overturning mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs right. decision. And in one of the concurring opinions from Justice Thomas, there was dicta that suggested that all rights based in privacy should be revisited, including same-sex marriage. And so the Congress then acted to try to shore up same-sex marriage so that it wasn't based only on a Supreme Court ruling, but there was a statute in place as well. Uh, The legal effect was nil because Uh the law of the land is since the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell was to recognize same-sex marriage everywhere. But if, you know, they overturned Roe, they could overturn Obergefell, then at least we have the statute to fall back on. Are you still concerned about us being losing same-sex marriage? Can I tell you a little secret? Don't tell anyone this. The okay. way we're on a podcast. Sure. Well, that's um, okay. I'm this. not. I'm not. Right. If I, I'm one of these geeky uh, lawyer types who actually likes to still read cases. So when the Dobbs decision came out and it was voluminous because there were several concurring opinions and dissenting opinions, I read every single one of them. And when you sit down and read it all, as much as it was repugnant in so many ways, the justices in the majority, all but one, made a point of saying, this isn't about that. We're not going after same-sex marriage. We're not going after constitutional right to procreate and have uh, allow birth control and all, all these other things. And promise went the opposite direction. So one of nine suggested we should go after same-sex marriage. But even the other ultra-conservative justices made a point in their concurring opinions to say this isn't about that. And I kind of believe them. I also, from a sort of public policy and social standpoint, the the, the um, reproductive rights and anti-abortion movement was enormously well-funded and just more pervasively um, ingrained on each side in our communities in a way that is different than same-sex marriage. There was blowback around the time of these cases, but it's kind of died down. And you don't see people preaching from the pulpit. I mean, you'd see it some, but around the evils of same-sex marriage in the same way you did around the evils of abortion. I mean, that was a, you know, uh, a a holy war of biblical proportions, just to mix metaphors here, that that went on for 50 years and, and finally one side, you know, was successful. I don't see that same holy war happening around same-sex marriage. We do see a lot of hostility occurring toward our community, particularly the trans community, on the state level right now right that's not the same thing as attacking it's, it's still attacking our community but in a very different so in a I way know, that was a big that was a big sidebar sorry but no no it's very important i know it's very important i think what you're saying is very helpful and the way you're framing it is very helpful because i think a lot of people misunderstand what's happened going to marriage then and the reason you wrote your book, tell me why you wrote your book. I was having the same conversation <laughs> over and over and over again 
with couples and it was the same profile. They've been together 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And as I like to say, you know, they had long since figured out who's taking out the trash and who's paying for what and what side of the bed you sleep on. I mean, all the stuff that couples figure out, right? And they basically got to the point in their lives where they, they didn't need to be married for the sake of being married because they were already sort of de facto married or whatever they had negotiated right. in terms of a relationship. But now all of a sudden the law changes and they're hearing all this noise in the system about taxes and the state planning and I don't know what. And so they came to me again and again to say, Mr. Lawyer, is there some legal reason why we should or shouldn't do this? Tell us and so that we can decide. And so basically I decided to just write it down in the book because the truth of the matter is it depends on your circumstances. And I, what I say to people is, look, I'm going to, I think I said this before, I'm going to leave at the door all the other aspects of this question, like, I don't know, love and commitment, and maybe monogamy. And I'm just going to help you evaluate objectively the pros and cons from a legal, financial, and tax standpoint of marriage. And then you can decide what weighted importance you want to give the pros and cons. So I'll give you one example, if I may, because it's the one that came up the most frequent. There's something in the income tax world called the marriage penalty. Mm-hmm. That is to say, typically, when people get married, they wind up paying more income taxes. And that's what is known as the marriage penalty. The reason for that, by the way, is if person A earns X and person B earns Y, when you put it together, they're earning more, and so they get to the highest marginal rate quicker. There's a little bit of a urban myth out there that you could get married and file separately and not have that problem. That's just not true. You still get to the higher marginal rate quicker and your itemized deductions are phased out quicker. The only reason if you're married while you file separately is you don't want to get tagged with what the other person's doing if they're doing funky stuff. So often it is the case that when you get married, there's more taxes to pay. That's a negative. But on the estate tax side, if you're married, there's zero taxes. And if you're not married, there might be a tax. That's called the marital unlimited marital deduction. I used to call it the Melinda Gates exemption. I need to think of another example now. But yeah. in our law, you can leave an unlimited amount of assets to a spouse without ever having to pay a tax at death. And that applies on a federal and state level. But if you're not married and you meet certain thresholds, you may have to pay the tax, parentheses, within nine months of the date of death in cash. doesn't make any difference if the value of the estate's tied up in real estate or retirement accounts, or I don't know what. They want their money. Money that you have to pay. They're not taking grain. They're not taking potatoes. They're not taking cars. They're not taking houses. Cash. Cash. Cash dollars. Nine months. So anyway, you know, so... So the teeter-totter is, well, maybe you have to pay more income tax, but then maybe you won't have to pay an estate tax. I I had one couple in Massachusetts who had pretty high-powered corporate jobs, and we had this discussion, and they said, you know, that makes sense, but we really don't want to pay more income tax now, so we'll wait until we're getting closer to retirement, and then we'll get married. You can see where the story's going. You know, on vacation overseas, horrible accident, one of them dies, they're not married tax kicks in and in cash within nine months of the date of death, period, full stop. So meaning if they own property together, their names are both on the property, yep. 
not married. So Scott and Tim have property together. Uh, Tim dies. Scott is now faced to pay the tax on the assets that are now from me to him, from me to you. Yeah, maybe it's the short answer, right? Not to get yeah, a little I mean, technical, right. but it but, depends on the level, right? So right, in Massachusetts, right. at the time, we had a state estate tax that kicked in at this really low level of a million dollars. So anything above that that's going to an unmarried person As had a state estate tax. Yeah, not income tax, estate tax. State tax. Yeah. The federal number is much higher these days. It's $10 million per person, index for inflation, Happens to be 12.92 now, scheduled to sunset. I like to always remind people if you don't hurry up and die by the end of 2025, yep. you know, it's going to revert to that old level of 5 million per person. We're back to having, for some people, depending on their assets, the tax issues again. So, as, it, as, as we're talking about, these are the advanced state planning issues that we face, which are, I think, falling under the financial capital of a family when we're looking at it, but it also impacts the social, which is, you know, what's the money going to do philanthropy, uh, uh, the value system, whether the families are intact. It also impacts some of the, the human capital of the family, other they're going to, you know, what the lives are going to be like for the people that are left. So if we're talking in terms of, of the taxes, if I remember correctly, there's a thousand forty benefits. If I remember from the book. Yeah, I should remember uh, the number too. It was I like a, a one one thousand thirty-two you know, or, or some some like odd number. Yeah, it had been calculated by the General Accounting Office at the time in terms of just the federal benefits, and it you know it not only is the obvious stuff like taxes and Social Security, but patent and copyright issues and veterans issues and it goes on and on so if i'm a if we come sit with you as a same-sex couple and we're talking and and we happen to have a significant net worth say maybe we had a 15 million or 20 million dollar net worth i know you say this all the time that there's not one size fits all approach to anybody that you meet with but when you do the intake what are the things that you start looking at in our lives what are some of the unusual things that you try to find and uncover? Well, I mean, it starts with whether or not the couple's married or not and how you're navigating around that because most couples always want to make sure each other is provided for. And I've had time and again couples who are not married come in when there's a horrible diagnosis and my answer is go get married before we do anything else because if nothing else happens, at least you can inherit tax-free. Um, so that that's that is a starting point. And by the way, let me just digress for a second mm-hmm. because whenever I have this conversation, inevitably, somewhere along the way, it goes to who are we going to invite, what are we going to wear, and who's going to be you know cutting the cake. And I have to remind everyone that in our society, we blur the concept of marriage and weddings. Because they mm-hmm. typically, historically, in our modern times, come together. You don't have to do a big do. You can go to a justice of the peace, never tell anyone, except your lawyer and accountant, that you've gotten married and get married. You can choose to do a big do, but that's not required in order to be married. So just to help people separate it out. And back to your question about what do we think about? It's really, you know, kind of goals and objectives. Back to your concept of, you know, thinking about the, the five elements of capital. You know, who do you care about? 
where, you know, where do you want, I mean, typically they care about each other, but then the, after that, it gets very divergent. Obviously those couples who have kids want to provide for their kids. I see more of that in the younger generation. Someone said to me the other day, are you aware of the gaby boom? Gaby boom. Gaby. And I'm like, yeah, I see these 30 year olds uh -huh. coming in and having kids systematically. But my clients were in their 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s. They didn't have that as an option as much. Right. And so it's it's rarer for the older generation to be providing for kids. So then it's, you know, basically nieces, nephews, siblings, charities are what emerges, sometimes friends. And often people are either estranged from their biological families because they've been hostile to them about their lifestyle. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, you know, lifestyle. Or, or or the the family are amply provided for and they don't need to be provided for. So it is very often the case that people have token wishes for people, but they're not sure where they want it to go. So that's when we dig into what do you care about? I think it's interesting when John and I went we got married, we went to the we went down to the Justice of the Peace to get the license. We we did uh because our our medical benefits were being once marriage equality passed, we our the bank told us we had to get married or or we wouldn't be able to have domestic partner benefits anymore. So we went down and got married on, I think it was Good Friday, which wasn't intended, but we went down there Good Friday at three o'clock. And so our friend Roger, who's very Italian, was like, uh, you know, three o'clock you're going to go down there. I swear to God, if there's lightning and thunder, I'm out of there so fast you're not going to see me. And so anyway, we go down to get our license a couple of days before and we walk in and and it was a fairly new thing. So the there was a, a whole host of uh, straight couples in front of us getting married. And then they said, oh, my God, it's a gay couple. So they parted the ways and they wanted us to go to the front. And it was approaching lunchtime. And the the two guys that were the clerks helping are gay. Obviously, we they said, oh, no, they were one of them was going to go to lunch. They said, oh, no, we have to help these two queens. Oh, my God. So they the, uh, the whole group is now around us. And Scott, you know, my husband's very non public, n n doesn't like PDA, public display of affection, the military in him. So they're they're like, OK, boys. And the supervisor comes out and says, I thought you were going to lunch. Oh, no, no. We've got two queens here. We've got to help them get this over to us. It's going to take a while. So they start asking the questions and we just the simple things that you didn't think about. Like they said, okay, whose name's going to go on first on the application? Or it's like, we like to say here in death certificates and wedding certificate, death and weddings. Cause it's, it's either one in Illinois, it's right there next to each other. They said, who's on top. And I <laughs> cracked up. John is like, Oh my God, the uh, people around us, you know, once we got everything that they were laughing and they were applauding, it was really quite we were really quite taken by it. I just wanted to make that note that there was there was a very special R around all this for all of us to do this. So, I mean, but there was this anticlimactic side of it. We've been together 25 years, we were getting married. It's not, I mean, we already knew everything about each other. Right. It doesn't have the same climax right. or the same buildup like young couples are having today. Yeah, thing, because in Sorry, in, in most relationships, it's actually a milestone in the evolution of your relationship. We didn't have the opportunity for that 20 and 30 years ago. Our big milestones were whether we're going to live together 
whether we're going to purchase property together, whether we're going to commingle assets. That was Big. getting married, right? Yeah. And we had to hide it. For much yeah. of the time, we had a lot of this. Today, my dad even calls and reminds us, he said, you know, you guys could still have kids. You know, we're in our 60s. And and like, I said, dad, he's, he's Elton John. Look at Elton John. I said, dad, he's, he's got a billion dollars. He's like, I know, but I don't want that to stop you. It could still happen. You can still have kids. And and then he called and said, you know, Anderson Cooper, that he's so good. He had he's got a kid. I just want you to know that. And I'm like, two, two. I said, Daddy's worth a hundred million dollars, I think. He's like, I just don't want you to know. I just wanted you to know it could still happen. And so this whole concept of children. Not by accident, right? And you know, no. all joking aside, it's a I lot. Mean, whatever the naysayers want to say about our community. The people who create a family in our community do so purposefully and at some considerable expense. And that means they're incredibly intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to say they're better parents, but they're pretty good parents because you wouldn't go through all that and spend all that money on a whim. What do you think it costs average? Oh, Depends on how you're doing it. If you're, I mean, you know, if you're doing surrogacy, it can, it can be upwards of six figures easily. And the planning considerations for those gay couples that have kids challenging. Is it different? Less so. Um, it's actually more similar than different because it's all going in one direction, right? To each other, and then the kids and grandkids. It's when you don't have kids that it becomes much more complicated. And you've heard me say this before, but like, I want to leave everything to my husband. But if we're in the same car and he survives by fill in the blank, three, six months, I don't want it all winding up. No disrespect, my lovely brother-in-law with my brother-in-law. I want it coming back to my nieces and nephews right? and vice versa. Right. So how do we you do have that? the, well, you, you have to set up trust with cascading beneficiaries and allow surviving spouse full access so that in case he doesn't live for six months but lives for 60 more years he's amply provided for but we never know right we don't know whether we're going to be in the same car or natural causes or i don't know what so we have to have a bunch of toggle switches built in these instruments to provide for a variety of of things that can evolve and change as we age as a gay as the same sex couple male female i mean or or uh, LGBTQ plus, and I think you and I said this in our previous podcast when we when we reference gay, we're actually with no disrespect because we're older. It's really about referring to the LGBTQ plus all of the letters A Q Y P. I like to say LMNOP. Yeah, no, I want to be inclusive, and frankly, I, I try to keep up with the LGBTQI. But it gets to be a tongue twister for me. So I just say gay with the disclaimer that I intend to include everyone who likes to be included. Excellent. So as we age, do we need to think differently? I'm going to preface that we did the podcast on the challenge with aging LGBTQ people because we don't have very many assisted care or nursing homes that are willing to take openly gay people, let alone openly gay couples. What do we do? There's a lot of it's not simple it really depends on so many things 
I have this lovely widower who came to see me recently. He was very close to his husband slash partner of nearly 60 years and is very forlorn right now. And he's not particularly close to and doesn't have many people in his immediate biological family or even, you know, in-laws. And we were talking about his final arrangements. And I said, well, you know, if you know where you want them to be and you want to do what you did for so-and-so, just go do the pre-planning. And, you know, and he said, okay, I'll, will you look at the contract for me? Sure, I will. Okay, well, I want Winston Flowers, just like I had for my husband. And I want to make sure that's what I get. And so even if I put in the contract, who's going to go and show up and make sure that the right flowers are there? And he said, would you go? And I was like, oh, trust I'll go. But, you know, it's just like when you don't have people to do this stuff, you pretty much have to hire people or rely on good friends or advisors who have become friends to do some of these things for you. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yes, you. Thanks so much for listening to The Rainbow Bull. We hope you're enjoying it so far. And if you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, you can find us at www.tvolco.com. And all our social media platforms are listed in the show notes. Which we're not necessarily thinking forward like that. I, I just think that we're our community doesn't always think forward like that. It's just something we're not wanting to think about. Nobody wants to think about it, actually. But well, I don't know. I mean, I think some people do. I mean, it's sort of all over the map, right? We're not a monolithic community. I mean, there are some people like this client I was just referring to who cares about what the flowers are going to look like at his funeral. There are yeah. other people who would say to me, I don't care, I'm dead. Like, you know, I don't, you know, so we're, it's a little all over the map. But for the important stuff, like your assets and your property and your belongings. You know, I have clients who are very fond. I'm sitting here in Provincetown as we speak, and there's a beautiful, charming uh, art museum that has artists from the Cape for decades. And I have a number of clients who have some beautiful, you know, opera and other things, and they want to make sure it goes to the pan. It's Provincetown Art Museum. And, you know, those things matter. And back to your, you know, five, uh, capitals of flourishing family. I mean, it's not just about the taxes and, and the, the, the dollars and cents, but the stuff you care about. And sometimes it is objects. Sometimes it is people. Sometimes it's philanthropic causes. It's all of it. So the complexity that we may think about are, I was thinking of, of examples of some of the complexity because I'm aware of and have friends that are in polyamorous relationships. Have you seen much of that? And how is that a state? That must just complicate. Yeah, that that's a whole new thing. And I am seeing more of it, not like scores of it, but I've probably in the last three years planned for half a dozen poly relationships um, hmm. that aren't, by the way, I, I'm trying to think, I think all of them are straight, actually. Anyway, it doesn't matter, right? It's just, it's a new level of complexity. The tax code hasn't begun to think about this, right? There's no way to deal with that. So you have to really go into your bag of tricks to try to make it all work, right? But there, it starts with trust-based planning. I mean, I had this one group of three men who were not in an intimate relationship with each other, but they had all been best friends for their entire professional lives and concluded that they were going to be single for the rest of their lives. And, and in retirement, each of them individually could buy a modest house, but all together could buy a really 
kick-ass, beautiful house on the water. So they wanted to do that and combine their resources and make sure that whoever goes first, everything's left behind for the other two and then the other one. And then when they're all gone, then things sprayed out to various different either charities or people. And it was really cool to, you know, it's a big jigsaw puzzle, but there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. The uh, store, one of the stories I was thinking about as well as another example were a uh, same-sex couple that you had years ago. And I, I, you and I were doing something together, some, some work. And uh, it was a prenup that had been presented that they weren't aware of. Remember the family brought the prenup to, and you researched it. Like you, you were, they didn't want to sign it. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Why is you, you, you started to research the prenup and the whole family, there was a whole uncovering of, of wealth and challenge and trying to guide them through that process. Do you remember that story? Oh, I remember it was two women were in grad school and living, you know, as grad students too, more modestly. One of them was from a well-to-do family, but even he didn't know the scope of her family's wealth. And we get the first draft of the prenup. And in a prenup, you have to do what's called full and fair financial disclosure. You have to Mm -hmm. share what your assets and liabilities and income are so that later people don't say, well, you know, if I had known about that Swiss bank account, I may not have agreed to this or whatever. So so in the financial disclosure, there was a footnote that, you know, so-and-so was the beneficiary of certain family trusts. And the footnote said, and the value of the interest in these trusts is somewhere between three and th- $300 million. Let me say that again, between three and $300 million. So I call up the other lawyer on the other side and I said, um, I want to ask you a question about this footnote. He goes, yes. And I said, well, first of all, that's a really big ring. And secondly, seriously, like what what's going on here? And it turns out, you know, it was all about uh, protecting the family wealth. It was it turns out was the person's dad was a billionaire and it became uh, intense. That's all I'll say about that one. What did you learn about that? What did you learn from that? I mean, you know, there's no substitute for parents discussing wealth with their kids before they hear about it from the, from a lawyer. Because it does create a problem. Did it create a problem between the couple? Oh, they were in tears at one point and just contemplated eloping and, you know, it was really stressful. Wow. So do you recommend prenups? It depends. When should I consider that? It's too late. Your ship has sailed. <laughs> but um, but for most people, it's really if if you have very disparate assets coming into a marriage and you want to make sure you ring fence off what you've come in with. And our kind of most classic prenups say something like this. You have your stuff. I have my stuff. And we both will agree that if the wheels come off the wagon and we need to park company, I get to keep your, my stuff and you keep your stuff. But anything we choose to put in to joint name, irrespective of who paid for it, gets split 50-50. So if later, as you're together, you want to buy a house together, but one person's paying the down payment or the other person's just paying all of it, you can choose to put things into a communal pot that eventually would get split 50-50, but you keep what you came in with, basically. And if you never split up, you don't have to worry about it. 
So I often recommend them when people are coming in at different stages in their life with very disparate balance sheets. Is there a challenge with gay or LGBTQ divorce in estate planning? Um, yes and no. I mean, divorce is by its very nature acrimonious and okay. unpleasant often and sad sometimes. And whether you're straight or gay, it's all those things. So I don't think there's anything unique um, ex except for the following. Because we didn't have marriage available to us for so long, people who had been together for decades and later got married and then divorced could find themselves in a situation where they're not counting the whole time they were together. So it, it, uh, and this is, I'm not a family law expert, but you know, there are yeah. community property states that are easier because everything's community property when you're married and just divide it 50 50. But most states are sort of a facts and circumstances state. So if I was putting you through grad school all those years or residency and paying for things or supporting you and working while you were doing this stuff, and later we got divorced, I would get credit for that. Wow. And if I wasn't married, I wouldn't get credit for it. So it's tricky. So the essentials of an estate plan, based on what you and I've talked about before, is the right team the right advisory team, the right counseling, and I think you've said the right documents to support it. Any and there's a there's a third thing, keeping them updated. These things get uh, stale over time. Tax laws change, your assets change, your goals and objectives may change. People or parities you care about inevitably are going to change. And it is so often the case that people don't look at these things we're not trained to i can't tell you how many times i've had someone come in after someone passed away couples married been married owned property together and who's getting the retirement plan is x from 30 years ago because he never updated the beneficiary form happens all the time it's a contract you can't change it after you're dead and the beneficiary form governs where that asset goes at death so it's not just about doing the documents it's about doing the plan and we got to look at all the stuff and figure out which knobs you have to dial when. One of the things I wanted to highlight is I, I've asked you this before, and I wondered if, you know, you you set out with your practice, Squalache and Associates, to build a practice that would support the LGBTQ community, and I'd say our allies. How that evolved to be a, a more of a 50-50 world for you didn't it i mean it's always i've always asked you what are your what are your surprises you about your clients and you said well i have a lot of straight clients <laughs> yeah i mean i always jokingly say I, we don't discriminate we work with straight people too right but um you know it, it's it is more than the representative demographic in the population so you know pick a number of seven ten percent you know our clients in the community are somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of our practice so it's a big number, but it's still not a majority. I mean, you know, like I said, we don't discriminate. We work with straight people. And you said, I asked you, did you ask them why they're there with you? And you said. So, some people like that we focus on these issues and they view it as a way of being more inclusive in their own world. Um, some people are indifferent to it. Some people don't know. That's fine. Um, I happen to have an expertise in international stuff, having lived and worked in Europe for 10 years and been admitted to the PRFR. 
So sometimes people come to me just because of the international expertise. So it's a little all over the map. But I think also one of the fears people have when coming to speak and create a relationship, as you say, it's such a critical relationship, is the fear of being rejected, the fear of being accepted, the fear of being heard. How do you overcome that? There's no simple answer, no, but Mm. you really just have to meet people where they are. And this stuff iterates in different ways. Some people come with their cards held very close to the chest because they've been burnt before, and other people gush all their personal stuff on a first meeting. And you just have to meet people where they are. But you really do have to listen. I mean, most lawyers I know in the space are so keen on sort of educating their clients about how a marital trust formula works and how asset protection features work. Some people care about that and they don't, but there's no substitute for just listening. What needs to emerge will emerge. Particularly some of the skeletons or some of the things that people are willing to finally share that you might need to know as part of the estate planning. Do you have any illegitimate? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so- <laughs> I have my the one that popped into mind just now. I don't know if I ever told you the story. So this gay couple comes to see me. They're not married. And they had their advisor with them, their financial advisor. And mm-hmm. he said, is it okay if I sit in the meeting? I said, sure. As long as we have their permission, you can sit in the meeting. But um, if at any point something comes up that I need the attorney-client privilege to apply to, I may call a timeout and ask you to leave the room because – the privilege doesn't apply when it's in the presence of third people. And, oh, by the way, if there's anything for either of you guys that's unique because you're not married, there's no spousal privilege. So, you know, so and I give that disclaimer all the time when people want to join a meeting. So we get to the part of the design for who gets what, because they were all about making sure each other was provided for. And the one guy wanted everything to go to his nieces and nephews for college education. I'll be great. The other guy was from a big Irish Catholic family and but he had this one brother that really had had a tough time in life and he just wanted everything to go to him. I said, okay, tell me his name. And he said, well, do you want his real name or his alias? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, does it matter that he's a fugitive from the law? And I said, okay, time out. You and you leave the room. (laughs) And he blurted out as I was saying this, it's not Whitey Bulger. And I said, stop talking, (laughs) stop talking. And, uh, and then we proceeded to have the conversation in a privileged context about this person uh, that he wanted to provide for. As we bring this to close, I was just going to say, I'd like to know, since you wrote the book, and it's been 10 years since you started writing the book, at least, any thoughts that you have as a follow-up that you would like to get you, that you've said over and over again to people that would be another add-on from the book or anything you'd like to add? I mean, there's so many thoughts I have in the area. I guess the key point for everyone to remember, particularly couples who have been together for a long time and view marriage as sort of a heteronormative thing that they don't subscribe to, it matters when the awful stuff happens. And that's the only time it really matters. And then it's too late and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So we all hope the awful stuff doesn't happen plane going down, the car crash, the I don't know what, but every once in a while it does. And boy, those people who have protected themselves by getting all these statutory rights on a federal and state level, it just makes all the difference when awful stuff happens. Yeah. Well, 
I uh, really want to thank you for your thoughts today and willing to share. I have a feeling we'll be inviting you back to talk some more about this because I have a feeling that people may send us emails and ask us questions. And please, as a listener, if you want to have more questions or want us to, to have further conversation with that, I think you should definitely send us an email and we'd be happy to to bring Scott back. I think that one of the important things for us to know is how to get a hold of you, Scott. If you have questions, so, engage you. Yeah. My last name is unique and difficult, but if you can spell it, you can find me, uh, squillacelaw.com. It's S-Q-U-I-L-L-A-C-E, and uh, again, based in Boston. Patrice, are you there? Have you got any thoughts? What do you think so far? I loved it. I think, Scott, you nailed it when you said, listen, you've got to meet people where they are. You have to. And this part two, listeners, of Tim's discussion with Scott, it, it's been about estate planning, marriage, legal rights, but so much more. And the information is of value to everyone. Yes, even you there shaking your head, I can say it. So follow the podcast. Share these shows with people you care about. Let Tim know if you've got topics and questions. Yeah, oh, by the way, Tim, how can they get you? The, uh Everybody, you can email me at tim.volk at tvolko.com, or you can call me at 312-636-5855. We work on a national basis with families and their advisors, and our goal is to help connect people with the right resources if we're not able to help them. And, uh, you know, I think it's very helpful to have somebody like Scott, who's a deep thinker on these issues and helps us to think with all the team that I've had and all the guests I've had is to help our listeners flourish, you know, and help to find that level of helping them and their families do really well. So uh, please call us, please listen to the podcast. If you like it, please like it, share it with others. That's how we get more listeners and getting more listeners helps us all around. So uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the rainbow bull podcast. Visit our website at www tvolco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855 and don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.